0: This is Where We Live. From Connecticut Public Radio, I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Primary day has come and gone, but Bridgeport's Democratic mayoral primary is not settled yet. State Senator Marilyn Moore is contesting the results after losing a surprisingly close race to incumbent Joe Gannim. Coming up, Mark Pasniokis from the Connecticut Mirror will explain what's happening in Bridgeport first, more than 20 states have reached a tentative settlement against Purdue Pharma, maker of opioid painkiller OxyContin. The drug manufacturer based in Stanford, Connecticut, has been the focus of thousands of lawsuits as communities around the country zero in on the company's role in the opioid crisis. Now, Connecticut is one among 25 states and the District of Columbia that have not signed on to the settlement. And now, on Sunday, the drug manufacturer has filed for bankruptcy. What does this mean for the tentative settlement? For more on this, joining me by phone is Lenny Bernstein. He's health and medicine reporter for The Washington Post, who covers the opioid epidemic. Lenny, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, Lucy. Thanks for having me.
0: And our listeners can join the conversation too, 888-720-WNPR. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Uh, Lenny, I mentioned on Sunday uh, Purdue Pharma declared bankruptcy. This was, uh, I believe, expected. But tell us about the lead up to this announcement. I mentioned there are thousands of municipalities that are suing opioid manufacturers, uh, some in federal court, some in state court. Uh, There was news of this tentative uh, settlement with Purdue. Uh, tell us how we got to this point.
1: Sure. As you said, bankruptcy was completely expected. In fact, it's part of the deal. Purdue has worked out a settlement with the 2,000 plaintiffs in a gigantic federal lawsuit and about half the states that have separately sued the company in their own courts. And the deal that they've worked out is that Purdue would be dissolved, the assets would go into this trust. Uh, that would be producing uh, treatment drugs and emergency drugs, naloxone for overdoses. And then Purdue would reemerge from bankruptcy, resurrected as a public benefit trust whose only purpose is to produce as much of these drugs as and provide them around the country as possible. Um, so in that way, they are saying, you know, we are we're moving into the next step. Purdue no longer exists. We want to help clean up this mess, but of course, there's this sticking point over the Sacklers' money as a family.
0: So, looking at this tentative settlement, how much are we talking about? A multi-billion-dollar settlement. How much of it is Sackler money?
1: The overall settlement is valued at ten to twelve billion dollars. Uh, that's a squishy number because it includes about $4 billion worth of drugs that are actually not yet on the market. Uh, they've been valued for the purposes of the settlement by various analysts in the 4 to $4.5 billion range. But frankly, we don't know yet what they're going to be worth because uh, the FDA hasn't approved them. So they're not out there being sold to people. The Sacklers themselves have to put in at least $3 billion again. Here's, this is a point of contention because they will be selling an international drug company called Mundi Pharma that they own. If they fund the whole $3 billion out of that, then they don't have to take any money out of their own bank accounts. And um, there's also a formula that if they, if they get a lot of money for Mundi Pharma, they would be adding to the $3 billion.
0: I understand uh, you mentioned uh, more than 20 state uh, attorneys general uh, wanting to come to the table with Purdue Pharma on this tentative settlement, but there are are many state attorneys general who are not uh, for this uh, deal, including uh, Connecticut's attorney general, William Tong. This is what he told PBS NewsHour uh, late last week.
2: Based on what we know of the billions of dollars that uh, the Sacklers took out of the company because of the tremendous damage that they have done and uh, the scope and the scale of the death and destruction and the pain that came at their hand, uh, what's been offered so, so far doesn't even begin uh, to meet what they owe the people of Connecticut and the people of this country.
0: Uh, so there is uh, State Attorney General William Tong in Connecticut. Uh, you mentioned uh, sales, uh, future sales of uh, a drug or drugs that Purdue Pharma is manufacturing. Uh, that seems, uh, again, to be uh, problematic to attorneys general like Tong, who wonder, is this money really going to come to pass?
1: Right. That's one issue, which is, are we really going to see this much money? The second issue, as your, your um, clip pointed out, is... There's a real divide among the attorneys general, and it tends to be Democrats versus Republicans, although not totally. But there's a real divide among them. Uh, are the Sacklers contributing enough? Over In recent years, we know that the Sacklers have taken money out of the company and put it into their personal accounts and what people like tong and massachusetts and new york are saying is three billion is not enough from their personal accounts. yes would we'd be dissolving the company yes they would be out of the drug business but because of what the of the profits that they made off of the um, the addiction and some of the overdoses that occurred here over the past twenty years we want more than three billion from them now those who are going along are saying It's better for us to be in bankruptcy court with them, trying to make adjustments, trying to get more from them than to be on the outside yelling about the deal.
0: Lenny Bernstein is health and medicine reporter for The Washington Post, who covers the opioid epidemic. As we get the latest on this tentative settlement with Purdue Pharma, again, a opioid manufacturer based in Stamford, Connecticut, uh, now declaring bankruptcy. So uh, if our listeners have a question about uh, this uh, proposed deal, you can join us, eight eight eight87 720 9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Uh, Lenny, you know, I was curious with uh, now that this is going to be in bankruptcy uh, court, Does this hurt states like Connecticut um, who, depending on how the judge rules, they could be, uh, I guess, locked out of any possible Sackler money moving forward if the
1: deal is approved? Indeed, it's risky. Um, The bankruptcy judge, under normal circumstances, has the right to halt all the litigation against Purdue. And that makes sense, right, when you think about it. I, I have no assets left. I go to bankruptcy court and I say to the judge, I have all these people suing me, they want my money, but I don't have anything left, and therefore you should halt all that outside litigation. That's not the case here, though, because we know that the Sacklers have lots of personal assets. Billions of dollars are in their personal funds. So Purdue, as a company, is seeking bankruptcy protection. People like your attorney general and others are saying, yeah, but there's a lot of money still there and we want to pursue it. So. A lot will depend on how the bankruptcy judge looks at this.
0: Uh, We're getting a tweet. Uh, uh, The person writes, Sacklers move their personal wealth offshore and there's no criminal prosecution. Uh, Here she writes, they should be reduced to poverty and imprisoned for creating widespread addiction in order to make huge profits. And Lenny, I think that speaks to a part of uh, the issue that so many uh, families and friends of those who have died or been impacted by uh, opioid uh, addiction, that uh, even if this deal were to go through, there's really no Money, no value that can bring back their loved ones.
1: No, there isn't. And this is the most common reaction by far that I get every time I write a story, even a small story, even an incremental story. Uh, The vast majority of comments and tweets, uh, like the one you just read, are where are the criminal charges? Why don't the Sacklers? or executives of this company and others. I want to remind listeners, we're talking about a lot of other drug companies involved in this, but why aren't they paying criminally? And that's a very difficult question. For a prosecutor to take an executive to uh, criminal charges to a court, they have to show intent. They have to show a lot of things that they don't have to show civilly. And that's a tougher nut to crack. Now, is it impossible... No, because in recent months, two federal prosecutors in this country have brought the executives of two distributors, not manufacturers like uh, Purdue Pharma, but two drug distribution companies to court criminally, and they have indicted them. So it's not impossible. It's a little easier with the drug distributors, and we can talk about that if you'd like. But the, the, the vast majority of the angry public out there... The number one reaction is, where are the criminal charges?
0: So tell us more about why it's easier uh, going after the
1: drug distributors. Sure. So the Controlled Substances Act, the the federal law that governs here, makes the distributors the gatekeepers, the safeguarders of where these drugs go. And that makes sense, right? Because in the supply chain, chain. The manufacturers give the drugs to the distributors, the distributors bring them to the pharmacies. So the distributors have the best visibility on where these drugs are going. If a pharmacy is ordering 10,000 pills one month and 100,000 pills the next month, that's what we would call a suspicious order. That's what the law calls a suspicious order. So the organization that's going to be best able to see that is the distributor who brings, sends those drugs to the pharmacy. And the law requires that they halt that shipment, that they flag it for the DEA, and that they do their own uh, investigation to look into it. If you're going to bring criminal charges, they're sort of the first line of defense. And that's why it's easier to do it with them than with a manufacturer who's one step up the chain.
0: Uh, because there are so many other players in uh, what's been described as this opioid crisis uh in our country, what does that mean for these other lawsuits uh against uh you know different uh you know, again these players that are in that are part of this the pharmacies and others?
1: Yes, so this is the the other thing that folks need to understand is beginning about twenty fourteen cities and counties, Native American tribes organizations around this country began suing drug companies, the whole drug industry, manufacturers, distributors, large retail pharmacy chains, and they were suing them in their local courts. So the federal court, a panel of the federal court said, we're going to put all this together and send it over to this one judge in northern Ohio, and we're going to have what's called a multi-district litigation. At this point, there are well over 2,000 lawsuits Consolidated there against probably two dozen different companies. The first test case, the first bellwether trial, is set to begin uh, in the middle of October, just a month from now, and it's against at this point seven companies. It's between the two two counties in Ohio, Cuyahoga and Summit, versus seven different companies right now. Now, any of those companies could settle with those two counties between now and the start of the trial. In fact, after the trial begins, they could settle if they want to. So we don't know exactly what it's going to be, but it's being watched across the country and across the industry, because however that trial turns out is going to be a good indication of what thousands of others may get from the industry, if anything.
0: Uh, because uh, Purdue Pharma declared or has uh, uh, declared it wants to seek bankruptcy, does that take them out of this uh, upcoming trial, Lenny?
1: Yes, if this goes forward in the fashion that it is currently designed, Purdue would no longer be sued in that federal trial.
0: And then we are familiar with how Johnson and Johnson lost that case in Oklahoma, ordered to pay millions. I believe they're appealing. But when you see the result of that, a sign that juries will be siding with municipalities over these companies.
1: Great question. That. Verdict is probably going to have an impact on any state litigation that is allowed to go forward. let's say the bankruptcy judge allows uh, the C- Connecticut lawsuit to go forward. then if you're William Tong, you're happy about that Oklahoma verdict because if you're suing Johnson and Johnson, and I can't remember what what every state which companies every state is suing you've already seen how Oklahoma was able to get a five hundred and seventy two million dollar verdict out of them, so that's good. For, for the attorney general. I don't think it'll have much impact on that giant federal case, however. There are different rules in federal and state courts, uh, different uh, causes of action, different defendants. So uh,
0: Lenny Bernstein again with the Washington Post, uh, Purdue Pharma uh, seeking bankruptcy. So what happens now in terms of uh, Connecticut and these other states that did not want to sign, into this, sign on to this tentative settlement? Will they be before that bankruptcy judge as well?
1: Yes, they will. All eyes turn to the bankruptcy court now. And we couldn't get a fix late last night when Purdue declared at 1130 uh, exactly when all this will happen. But now everybody's going to go to the bankruptcy court and the municipalities and states that are going along with the deal will say, Your Honor, we have an agreement this is okay with us. We want to move forward and and start to think about how to dissolve Purdue Pharma and, and take what we can from it and give it to communities across the country so that uh, we can start sending these disaster drugs, uh, naloxone and nalmaphane and other treatment drugs. And the states like mm-hmm. Connecticut will be in the same venue and they'll be saying, your honor, this deal's no good. We want to pursue uh, the Sacklers further in our state courts, and we need you to allow it.
0: Uh, one more before we let you go, Lenny, uh, when you compare uh, what's happening now with uh, the huge tobacco uh, settlement uh, litigation from a few decades ago, any lessons to be learned for municipalities and states as they pursue Purdue Pharma and these uh, other
1: companies? So on the state level, I think you're seeing very similar um, a very similar playbook. Things are proceeding roughly along the same lines as they did in tobacco. There was no big federal multi-district litigation for all the little municipalities across America in the tobacco case, but there were a series of state cases. Uh, And what we saw was that after a couple of those were um, tried in court or settled at the last minute, that everybody kind of got a barometer of what these cases were worth. And then there was a Big mass settlement. Um, now, tobacco companies had a lot more money than some of these drug companies, so I wouldn't look for verdicts quite that large.
0: Lenny Bernstein again is health and medicine reporter for the Washington Post, who covers the opioid epidemic. Lenny, we really appreciate your time. Thanks.
1: My pleasure. Anytime.
0: This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Coming up, we're going to shift to Bridgeport, where there's allegations of absentee ballot fraud after last week's primary election. If you live in Bridgeport, we want to hear from you. You can join us, 888-720-WMPR. That's 888-720-9677. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanschel. Primary day elections in Connecticut had some surprises, including in Bridgeport, where the Democratic race for mayor has yet to settle. That's because State Senator Marilyn Moore is challenging, who challenged incumbent Joe Gannam, lost a close race because of absentee ballots, 270 of them. Absentee ballots have been mismanaged, misused, everything in Bridgeport forever. And this is just another one of the instances. So I'm not surprised by it. Again, that's State Senator Marilyn Moore on election night speaking with News 12. Uh, But this happened in a city where often there have been allegations of voter fraud. And now Moore is calling for an investigation. We wanted to check in on that. So joining us now in studio, Mark Pasniokas, Capitol Bureau Chief at the Connecticut Mirror. Mark, welcome back. Hi, Lucy. Uh, So to remind us, how close was this race of the ballot box?
2: So Marilyn Moore won at the polls uh, and then lost on the absentees because Mayor Ganim, uh actually there were 12—I think it was about 1,200 absentee ballots cast, and Gannam won uh, roughly 900 to 300— in the absentee ballots. So overall, it was very close. It was the 270 vote difference. And that, this is in a race where there were more than 10,000 votes cast. So it was a close race, not nearly close enough to trigger an automatic recount under Connecticut law. To trigger a recount, you would have to come up with some uh, evidence of irregularities. And so far, all she has is uh, the fact that it looks weird. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that that... Could Ganim's organization just do such a wonderful job of identifying its supporters and getting them to uh, vote by absentee ballot uh, as opposed to having it more random? Because, you know, Ganim, uh, I think last time Ganim uh, either split – the no, I think he he lost the absentees and he was going up against an incumbent mayor, Bill Finch. Mm -hmm. So obviously, uh, when you have the organization behind you, absentee ballots uh, are, are a tool. Now, Connecticut law is pretty strict about uh, how you do these things, but where there is evidence of fraud in Connecticut, it tends to be absentee ballots because you can go to a nursing home, you can go to an elderly housing complex, and maybe pick up 20, 30 votes there. And the question is, do you do it legitimately, do you manipulate people, or do you just just get people to apply for the absentee ballot and then take them and actually have somebody else cast the votes. Mm-hmm. Again, there's no evidence of wrongdoing by Mayor Ganham or the Democratic uh, organization, other than the fact, as I said, it just looks bad.
0: So for someone to actually fill out an absentee ballot, what are the rules around that?
2: Well, you can, if you have a disability, you could have certain people with you, that kind of thing. But other than that, uh, you have to do it on your own. Um, it can't be hand- It's not supposed to be handed in by somebody else. Uh, if uh, if it's your child, you can. I uh, I can attest to that by personal experience. I hand delivered a ballot from Boston to uh, Connecticut some years ago when <laughs> one of my college age kids forgot to mail her absentee ballot. But uh, but other than that, no. You're supposed to mail it in yourself. And and the and the law is pretty strict. You've you're supposed to be out of town or you're supposed to be physically unable to do it. And that's, of course, that's a whole other story about how strict it is in Connecticut. And and this stuff is actually in the state constitution. So Mm -hmm. it's supposed to be very strictly done.
0: So the hits keep coming uh, with uh, State Senator Marilyn Moore because she lost this close race because of absentee ballots. But she was saying all along she's going to be on the November general election ballot on the working families line. But what happened there, Mark?
2: Put it bluntly, they screwed up. Moore's campaign should have been on top of it. Uh, it does not take much to get on the ballot in November. Uh, the irony is, it's a much harder job in Connecticut to force a primary in a municipal race. It requires uh, petition getting petition signatures from five percent of the uh, registered voters. And in the case of uh, Bridgeport, you know, she had to get 2,400, 2,500 valid signatures, which means you really should collect about 3,000 because, you know, some won't be good. Uh, to get on the ballot in November, it took 1% of the vote for the same office the previous time, 1%. So that was only 207 signatures and they screwed up. They, they handed in about 270. There were 100 and fewer than 170 that were validated. Uh, and by validated, it's you find out, are they really a registered voter? Do they live where they say? You know, are they on the rolls? Um, and it, they fell short. Mm. Uh, it, really, it really is inexcusable in, in political circles not to be able to do that.
0: Well, I'm curious about the timing, as I'm sure other listeners are as well, and that is uh, they had to get those signatures in uh, sometime in August. And so why are why is the campaign finding out about this on Election Day? <laughs>
2: it's a good – well, I think because the <laughs> Connecticut Post made the inquiry and reported it. But, uh, yeah, the signatures were due August 7th. Uh, it does take time to validate i uh, uh, they, so that's in the registrar's office in Bridgeport. They would check the signatures against the voting list uh, and then they count them and then they send them to Hartford. Uh, so, yeah, it was kind of weird that it came out really the day before the election. But it's, if you look at the schedule in state law as to how they have to do it, it, it really kind of made sense. It, it, it takes a few weeks. It's, that's not unusual.
0: Uh, in studio with me is Mark Pasniokas, Capitol Bureau Chief at the Connecticut Mirror, as we get an update on what's happening with the Bridgeport uh, Democratic mayoral race. Again, primary day last week, uh, State Senator Marilyn Moore surprised a lot of people when she came close to beating incumbent uh, Joe Gannon. Uh, but now she's not even going to be on uh, the November ballot uh, as we speak. Uh, so I guess um, now we are hearing that Marilyn Moore, you reported, um, sent out a press release uh, late last week calling for an investigation. Uh, so tell us about that very strange statement?
2: I found it extremely puzzling because if you want an investigation, you file a complaint. Uh, She issued this sort of shotgun uh, press release calling on unnamed state and federal authorities, as well as Governor Lamont uh, and the state and national democratic parties to investigate. Well, the, the Democratic Party has no ability to do that. Um, they they would have jurisdiction if it was allegations of impropriety at a convention. Um, but really the burden is on the, the campaign to reach out. It's public information who votes by absentee. It's not obviously public information how they voted. But there's nothing in stopping them from surveying as many of these voters as they can and question them and ask you know, a couple of questions. Did you cast this absentee ballot? And if you get a, if you get a couple of people who say no, um, that's evidence you can go to the state's attorney and, and ask them to open an investigation. Now, that wouldn't necessarily help Marilyn Moore between now and November because that would not stop an election. They would then have to go to court mm-hmm. and make – the case that this uh, primary should be done again. And there's, you know, difference of opinion. It you know, a lot of people think that you would have to have evidence that there are 270 votes at issue, the margin in the race. That would be difficult, certainly. The other option, of course, is she can proceed as a write-in candidate, which is a very difficult task, but it's become a lot easier since Connecticut went to paper ballots uh, in the old days with those funky machines. Um, Mike Jarjora in 2005, when we still had those machines, he won a write-in campaign. He lost a primary, Mm -hmm. and he educated people how to cast a write-in vote on those old mechanical machines, I'm telling you, which is no mean feat. And uh, now it's, again, if she registers as a write-in candidate, it would be on the paper ballot. It would not have her name, but it would be a spot for write-ins. And you would fill in that oval and then write in her name if mm-hmm. you so chose.
0: Oh, when you mentioned that it worked in the past in Waterbury, do you remember what the turnout was for that race? <laughs> um,
2: I don't remember the turnout, but I do remember that Mr. Jarjour won by 2,000 votes, roughly 7,000 to 5,000 uh, so it really was an amazing thing. And it became – I mean his advertising was all about how you do it. Now, he was in a different spot. He was the incumbent. Um, he did have significant support outside the Democratic Party, so that helped. But Marilyn Moore certainly demonstrated last week that Joe gannum has significant weaknesses in Bridgeport. The fact that uh, he lost at the machines is really stunning. That just shows that there's a lot of dissatisfaction in Bridgeport. And I think the, the gloss has kind of come off Joe Gannum's amazing comeback in, to, in 2015 after serving time in prison.
0: I should mention uh, we did reach out to State Senator Marilyn Moore's campaign to see if she would come on to talk about uh, contesting this election. Uh, they declined for today. But there's precedence in contesting elections over absentee ballots. It happened in including in, in Bridgeport. Yes, well, <laughs> tell us about that. Well, in Bridgeport, yeah,
2: there was a Superior Court judge who ordered a new election. Uh, there was a, a candidate, Bob Keeley, in a local race there who found evidence of irregularities with an absentee, and yes, he succeeded. And having a new election, ironically enough, he <laughs> he then lost that new election. But you know, it, he did show it can be done. Um, this could be a little bit tougher because uh, his race was closer. Uh, Senator Moore would have to show you know that there were there was a question about hundreds of absentee ballots. Mm-hmm. Uh, so again, she has not indicated whether she would consider going forward on a write-in. It's a discussion that has to go on with a lot of her supporters. You know, she's got significant union support. Um, they would have to decide if they would buy in to continuing to oppose uh, a Democrat the, the winner of a Democratic primary. Uh, again, it it can be done. It would not be easy. Uh, if Senator Moore can use what happened with the absentee ballots, and, and generate, quite frankly, the passion that was not there in her campaign, by, by all accounts, maybe she could do it. Uh, but there's really no book on this. I mean, again, we have the Waterbury example, uh, who, you know, which involved an incumbent who had high name recognition, and he actually had a pretty good record of trying to fix Waterbury's finances back then. Can she do it? I, I don't know, but it sure would be, it should be fun to watch.
0: Uh, Is it fair for uh, more to be critical, uh, given the fact that in in 2017, when a judge ordered a do-over related to a a city council primary race, and then there was, I guess, Ganem's police chief, uh, Perez and Mario Testa, the Democratic boss, uh, had a police officer collect absentee ballots.
2: Yes, yes, they did. Uh, Mm -hmm. Yes. (laughs) And, you know, if any of your listeners were fans of the classic movie Chinatown, you know, at the end, it's... Jake, it's Chinatown. <laughs> you know, it's Bridgeport. There, there's a good reason why there's a very interesting news blog in Bridgeport. I think it's the best named news blog I've ever seen. Oh, it's called memory. Only in Bridgeport. I'm glad
0: you brought that up because I wanted to ask. Uh, I read that blog this morning and there's uh, people are now wondering could Marilyn Moore uh, run as a Republican to get on the ballot. So tell us about this a little bit.
2: <laughs> Technically, yes, yes. Uh, they could they could do that. Practically, I don't see it. Uh, I agree with. There was a gentleman quoted there, Bob Walsh. I, I agree with him entirely that um she she doesn't have. I don't think she has the depths of support. She would lose certain people if if she uh, if she ran on the Republican line. It, and the Republican, well, the Republicans I think are pretty clear. They're not going to do it. The other question was, would she support the Republican
0: John and, Rodriguez? Yeah.
2: yeah, and and that's and first off. You know, it's kind of a myth that a candidate that can hand over her five thousand <laughs> votes to the Republican—that's not how it worked. You know, people can be influenced by um, an endorsement by somebody they followed, but as we see in in the presidential campaign, as the field winnows, you know, it's mm-hmm. not like you can just hand over everybody and they're going to follow like sheep. So, yeah, that it's a it's fun to speculate, but. Um, Right now, Mr. Rodriguez seems pretty firm that he's going forward, and they he's a Republican she's a liberal Democrat I mean really
1: yeah
2: it would have to uh, there was more there was more speculation that Gannum is more of a centrist Democrat uh, to I don't know, to, to use it in, in just a crude measure that if he lost a primary that you know, would he be cross-endorsed by the Republicans? You know, I don't know. Would they be so afraid of uh, a liberal Democrat coming in? Mm. But, you know, in Bridgeport, every few years, the fight seems to be to knock out the establishment guy. Um, right now, the establishment guy is Joe Ganham and uh, he's looking pretty good, unless Marilyn Moore decides she's going to really take a crack at doing the right in, because the, the other stuff is is very hard. Uh, so, we'll hopefully we'll we'll hear this week. Uh, I interviewed Mike Dragora last week. I'll probably write something today just about his experience going forward with that. And again, it's, does he have
0: uh, advice for Marilyn Moore?
2: <laughs> <laughs> Teach people how to spell your name. Fortunately for Marilyn Moore, <laughs> her last name is not Nelpethanchil or Pazniokas <laughs> or anything else that's overly <laughs> ethnic. <laughs>
0: Well, we're going to have to leave it there. I want to thank uh, Mark Pasiokas uh, from the Connecticut Mirror. He's Capitol Bureau Chief. Wait, before we go, I need to ask anything that the secretary of the state can do in relation to these absentee ballot fraud allegations, because it does come up time and time again. It, what is it, coming it, out from, of her it office? It does,
2: but it's sort of a misnomer when people say the secretary of state is the chief elections officer. She has she has limited jurisdiction in these things. They really supervise um, – Overall, if from a higher level, um, you know these things are local races. Mm-hmm. They're handled in city hall, and she has limited ability to do that. So I, I don't see that she has any jurisdiction to come in. And and again, she does not have investigators. That's she's not set up to do that. You would have to find. Uh, you would have to entice a, a state's attorney or the chief state's attorney's office to come in and and do so. And and you're not going to do that by putting out a press release, calling for an investigation. They need a little bit more than that.
0: Well, Mark Passiogh, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks again for coming in.
2: Thank you, Lucy.
0: This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel, not running for office. Uh, Up next, will you be marching in the climate strike happening this Friday across the country and globe? We're going to talk with one of the Connecticut organizers, a 15-year-old student at the University of Connecticut. You can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Coming up tomorrow, where, where has American altruism gone? On the next Where We Live, we take a look at the state of volunteering in the U.S. and ask what's being done to motivate more Americans to give back to their communities. Do you remember the last time you volunteered? We want to hear from you. That show coming up tomorrow. Now, right now, we're shifting to this Friday. There being a climate strike in Hartford and in cities across the U.S. and globe. Activists are demanding action to address climate change. The strike happens just three days before the U.N. Climate Summit in New York City. Now, young people are taking the lead and calling for change. One of the organizers of the Connecticut Climate Strike is joining me now in studio, a Senate Wazer, who's a 15-year-old, as I mentioned, climate. An activist, also co-director of communications for Sunrise Connecticut. This is a youth-led climate change movement. Uh, Sena, welcome to the show.
3: Thank you so much for
0: having me. So uh, we hear a lot about uh, young people uh, becoming uh, more motivated to participate uh, in a democracy, calling for change. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've all heard the name Greta Thunberg, which is a, a Swedish 16-year-old uh, uh, who's been fighting uh, for more awareness on climate change and demanding action. So when you hear of Greta tell us how is she an inspiration to you
3: yeah so I mean I think what she's doing it's really important and yeah she has done amazing things and I think that is very inspirational yeah and she, I think it's it's really amazing how she really calls out um, you know a lot of people who have are not taking responsibility for the problems that they created. So, yes, that is very inspirational.
0: I mentioned you're 15. You actually are a student at the University of Connecticut. Uh, So tell us about how you got involved in environmental activism.
3: Yeah, so for me, it actually started when I was five. Uh, My parents read me a story about a whale named Ibis. And in the story, Ibis got caught in a fishing net, but she was very lucky and she got rescued. At that time, I loved that story. So I asked my parents to read me the author's note and the author's note said that most whales don't get freed; they die. Mm-hmm. And I was really upset by that, so I started crying and whining. And I did that for three days until my dad like couldn't take it anymore <laughs> and said, well, if you don't like something, then do something about it. So that was when I got into environmental activism and I really spent the last 10 years of my life Mm -hmm. focusing on whales and the ocean. And then I recently transitioned to being more focused on climate.
0: So your father gave you a call to action as a (laughs) five-year-old to do something about it. And so uh, again, very young uh, to be thinking about uh, these kinds of topics. And so Mm -hmm. tell us, what did you do to to be motivated to try to demand change for for whales?
3: Yeah. So after that, I got involved with a local organization in Hartford um, called Cetacean Society International. And they worked different to which are whales, Mm -hmm. dolphins, and porpoises. So I got involved with them. um, And I started like going to my local farmer's market and I handed out pamphlets um, there. And I was on the radio, I did some Mm -hmm. PSAs. And that was kind of my start in activism.
0: And so now um, you have turned your attention to climate change. Uh, uh, Tell us what your thoughts are, um, as we hear from climate scientists and others that um, if changes aren't made in the next decade or so, uh, our planet's really in trouble.
3: For me, there's a lot of fear involved because in 11 years, I'm going to be 26. And I guess for my generation, this is so pressing because most of our life is going to be lived after this like 11-year deadline. Yeah, I'm really scared, but I'm also hopeful because I see a lot of young people really standing up and taking action um, and I think I think we can do this. I think we can push and see a big change. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, so there's a lot of uh, sentiment from the public uh, about wanting to see uh, policy leaders uh, make some definitive action. Mm-hmm. So you live in Connecticut. How would you say uh, Connecticut's leaders are doing in terms of thinking about this threat and c- taking proactive steps?
3: I think we need to see a lot more. I know that some some of our political leaders are taking action um, but I don't think it's drastic enough because right now this crisis is clearly, it's very, very pressing. We need really big, bold steps. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not seeing that from our leaders. So that's something that we are pushing for this Friday. We are pushing for big steps. We need serious, like, and dramatic action mm-hmm. right
0: now. I'm talking with Senna Wazer, who's a 15-year-old climate activist, co-director of communications for Sunrise Connecticut. This is a youth-led climate change movement. She's one of the organizers of the Connecticut Climate Strike in Hartford taking place this Friday, September 20th. It's happening in cities across our country and globe. If you plan on marching during that climate strike, uh, when you mentioned Connecticut needs to take uh, bigger steps, uh, tell us more about what you'd want to see uh, actual uh, yeah. calls that to for policymakers or laws passed.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we're asking one of our like our main demand is that the governor declare a climate emergency for Connecticut. And then under that demand, we have all these other things that we're asking. Um, but some of the like the really important ones are asking that Connecticut expand energy efficiency programs um, because that will that's something that will help everybody in the state of Connecticut. We also want to ensure that all communities and public school kids um, have access to climate education. Um, and I think that this is especially important for kids because they're growing up with climate change. And then we also have other things that we're asking, like Connecticut ends uh, climate emitting pollutions on or before December 31st of 2030. And that Connecticut sees permitting new or expanding um, fossil fuel infrastructure.
0: Uh, we know uh, Governor Lamont recently signed an executive order yes. uh, directing its uh, state environmental protection agency uh, mm-hmm. to look for strategies to have a carbon free grid by 2040. But yes. you mentioned 2030 would be a better uh, deadline yeah. for the state.
3: The IPCC Report: The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change released a report saying last year saying that we had 12 years to drastically shift our society. So 2040 is too late, according to this report, and I think we need to take this very seriously because this is my generation's kind of future that we're putting on the line.
0: Mm-hmm. When we look at the, the state's approach, uh, there are uh, critiques from environmental groups that more needs to be done to mm-hmm. make our uh, coastline more uh, resilient uh, to the changes uh, uh, that we're seeing. Because of climate change. Uh, this is something that um, has been curbed because of, of funding uh, cuts. Uh, the, the governor doesn't want to borrow more money that might aid these projects. Is mm-hmm. that also problematic in your eyes?
3: Yeah. I mean, I think taking money away from the environment is very problematic right now because clearly we need to be taking big steps here. So if we're underfunding those programs, that's difficult.
0: You seem to have a really great handle on uh, this topic. Uh, how do uh, adults uh, react to your activism? Do you think that they take young people seriously uh, when you're demanding change like this, Senna?
3: In general, yes, I get taken seriously. Um, but I work very hard to present myself as a mature person so that I can be taken seriously because I think that there is also definitely like a, a lot of space to be taken seriously. And there are times when I feel a little bit like, Maybe they're not valuing my opinion or, like, how urgent this is for my generation as much as they should. Mm-hmm.
0: Tell us more about uh, Sunrise Connecticut, some mm-hmm. of your peers that are also involved.
3: So there's a national Sunrise movement, um, and then I work with the local hub here in Connecticut. Um, so my fellow co-director of communications, Mitchell Koveter, he's um also the co-organizer for the event on September 20th. So, um, yeah, we're working together a lot on this mm-hmm. issue.
0: Uh, We talked about steps uh, that you believe Connecticut uh, could take firmer steps in uh, mitigating uh, the effects of climate change. When we look regionally, uh, Vermont um, has a goal of achieving 90 percent renewable energy by mid-century. Oftentimes people look at the cost. What's it going to cost to get there? But the state's also seeing job growth in clean energy sectors um, and also cost savings for customers down the line. So Vermont could be a model for Connecticut.
3: Yeah, definitely. Um, I think we definitely need to look at like what all the other states and also other countries are doing. I would once again say that 2050 is too late. So trying to go earlier is really important um, because 2030 is our deadline.
0: Uh, when you look at um, student led activism um, in that has happened in the past uh, do you see any models that help you with your work today
3: yeah I mean I definitely look at Parkland um, and what the students did there and that is it's amazing you know and I think that's definitely something that we try and model after and it's very inspirational Um, and then also looking at like what Greta Thunberg is doing and you know her model and how she is activating people and getting them to turn out for these events is also another thing that we do
0: I mentioned this climate strike is happening uh, this Friday, uh, September 20th. Uh, who do you expect uh, will be there? Mm-hmm. Uh, we saw a poll that one in four students have actually got involved in climate activism. So do you feel that many peers such as yourself will be there?
3: I really hope so, yes. And I do think there will be a lot of um, young people there. So we're inviting you know high school students, middle school students, elementary school. We want everybody to be there. Um, but this strike is a little bit different than the ones in the past because we're not only inviting students, but we're also um, inviting adults. And we're asking them to join us because we really want to show our political leaders that it's not only young people who care about climate change, that we all care about it because it's going to be really important for everybody.
0: Uh, we mentioned uh, Governor Lamont uh, directing the state environmental agency um, to move forward. But I'm curious, are there any policies that you'd like to see the Connecticut General Assembly adopt mm-hmm. this next session?
3: Yeah. So some of the things I talked about, such as ensuring that all communities and public schools have access to climate education, that's something that we would like them to pass um, and them to go through with. Expanding energy efficiency programs, that's something that they could also work on. All of our asks are basically something that we want the legislature and the governor to work on together, um, except for like declaring a climate emergency. That's something that we specifically want to see from the governor.
0: Mm. Uh, We talked a little bit about uh, youth-led movements. Uh, You mentioned the importance of climate education in Mm -hmm. schools. As we know, uh, climate change has become uh, very politicized. There are uh, people who deny that this is happening. And so I'm just curious, uh, when you talk about climate education, what would you encourage uh, school districts and others uh, to lean on when we're talking about this with young people?
3: I think that, you know, there is lots of science out there about climate change. Um, so I think, you know, we have the proof. And that's what I want or what I'd like to see teachers use when talking to their students, just explaining <clears throat> the facts about climate change and where we're headed.
0: I want to take a call now. Uh, Susan's calling from Coventry. Susan, go ahead.
3: Hi, I've known San C.C.
1: was tiny, tiny. I buy vegetables at her parents' farm. (laughs) But I wanted just to let
2: you know that I will be at the march, and I will have this big sign that says voter registration. (laughs) And if anybody needs to register to vote, um, just look for my sign. And if you will be 18 before the next election, then please, please make sure you're registered
0: thank you, Susan, uh, for uh, that information. Senna, I mentioned you're 15, so you're not yet able to vote. You're not able know, yet to, so sad. to even drive, <laughs> uh, but you really are uh, trying to lead this movement uh, in yep. Connecticut. Uh, I talked about uh, people who deny uh, that climate change is happening. Uh, we have uh, uh, leaders in our country that mm-hmm. are climate deniers. I mean, what is your reaction to that?
3: That's really hard for me to see, knowing that they're denying something that could destroy my future. That is um, really hard, but it also definitely motivates me to work harder and to try and mobilize more young people so that we can work together and really fight this and make sure that we have leaders um, who who are going to take action on climate change because it's so influential for our lives.
0: Uh, you've come a long way from reading uh, IBIS uh, <laughs> yeah. when you were uh, you're five years old. What's been the reaction of your parents to your activism, Senna?
3: They have been very supportive. Um, you know, starting at five, they, they helped me get involved with organizations. Um, they supported me at the farmer's market, all these things. And now um, they're kind of like my personal chauffeurs. They drive <laughs> me around a lot, um, and they're, but they also help me with other stuff like proofreading and all of that. So, yeah, there's no way I could do this without them.
0: Um, The climate strike again happens uh, this Friday. And so what are your plans after that event, Senna?
3: Yeah, that's a little hard. I've been so focused on that event for the past couple months. But um, moving moving out of that event, I really want to continue educating people in Connecticut and also really start pushing the 2020 elections and how important it is to vote in in that election and then also I'm hoping to really you know once we mobilize all these people for this strike I really want to use that people power and move forward with it and have those people help us like lobby the legislature for these really important bills that we're working on.
0: I mentioned at the top of the segment that uh, you were also a student at UConn, I yes. believe, a freshman. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, as you look to your future, tell us what you're studying and how you hope uh, uh, to keep uh, leading uh, this uh, campaign for change. Yeah.
3: So I'm studying environmental science, and I really hope that That degree will give me a really good background so that I can really understand the science behind all of these issues that I'm working on. And then, hopefully, moving out of that, I can you know continue to use that in my lobbying and in other like work that I do and in one presenting um, to students and adults as well
0: mm-hmm. uh, there's a lot uh, in this conversation uh, that relies on uh, again activists encouraging change and wanting to see policymakers uh you know pass certain laws. but in the meantime, what are um some things that our listeners, if they're interested, mm-hmm. could do in the short term that can yeah. make an impact center
3: yeah. I would say start by making your home energy efficient. Um, So that means drawing down the amount of energy you use. So whether it's like replacing your light bulbs with their LEDs, um, those kind of things that you're using less energy. And then another thing you can do is have like a home energy audit um, and that will see like where you're losing the most energy in your home. Um, And then once you've done that, if you can like switch so that you're using renewable energy, that way you won't be um, contributing as much to climate change.
0: Uh, I know some people also change uh, what they eat uh, mm-hmm. because of, of the impact uh, of uh, meat on our planet. Yes. Is that something that you've done?
3: I'm vegetarian. Um, I'm not vegan, and my family. We actually we have a small farm, and we have cows, which I know is something that a lot of people, you know, have a problem with in relation to climate change. And I think um, it's really important that we realize that the way you ra- the way you kind of do agriculture is also very important because you can. Um, you know, farm, do animal farming or vegetable farming in a sustainable way, um, or it could be unsustainable, depending on how you do it.
0: Well, it's been a pleasure to speak with you, Senna Wazer, again, you. a 15-year-old climate activist, a student at UConn, and co-director of communications for Sunrise, Connecticut. Again, that climate strike happening uh, September 20th, this Friday in Hartford and in cities across the country. Uh, Sena, thanks for coming in today. Thank you. Today's show, produced by Carmen Baskoff. Our technical producer is Kayon Wolf. You can learn more about the show, just download our podcast on your favorite podcast app. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Thanks for listening.